You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his latest documentary, Taxi to the Dark Side, our guest today, Alex Gibney, takes an in-depth look at the torture practices of the United States in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Guantanamo Bay, focusing on an innocent taxi driver in Afghanistan who was tortured and killed in 2002. Gibney is the writer, producer, and director of the 2006 Oscar-nominated film Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which received the Independent Spirit Award and the WGA Award. Taxi to the Dark Side won the Best Documentary Award at the Tribeca Film Festival and is on the Academy Awards shortlist for Best Documentary. Alex Gibney, welcome to Film School. Thank you very much for having me. And how are you today? Not bad. Good. Are you? Uh, where are you today? I'm in New York. How's How's it going there? Is it Is it sunny, warm, cold? It's sunny, brisk. Ah, very <laughs> New good. York brisk. Okay, yeah. there you go. Excellent. Now, how is it that you uh, went from Enron to the torture practices of the United States and in, in Afghanistan and Iraq? Just bad luck. Yeah, really. <laughs> I, I was in a dark room and tripped over a body. Next thing I knew, <laughs> my I goodness, was in the middle of a, a murder mystery. I heard that somebody presented the uh, idea to you. No, and, it's quite true. I was yeah. on an Enron panel, actually, and yeah. a very angry attorney, oh. somebody who is a corporate attorney here in New York named Don Glasgow, was on that panel with me, and he came up to me afterwards and said, I feel very upset about what's going on in terms of torture and also uh, the corruption of the rule of law. Would you make a documentary about it if I could raise the money? Mm-hmm. It seemed pretty daunting. Uh, a subject to make a movie about, but I felt it was a very important one. And as you know from having seen the film, my dad was also a a naval interrogator, felt very strongly about the subject. So Mm -hmm. I decided to push forward and do it. So was your dad cheering you on right from the beginning? He he was cheering me on from the start. There's a thread that runs from Enron to torture, uh, (laughs) United States policy torture, our now former attorney general. Alberto Gonzalez, that's correct. Yeah, he Alberto was. Gonzalez was employed by Enron. He was at Vincent and Elkins, the law firm in Houston, and he was on the Enron account for a brief period. So yes, there's a, there's a thread that moves through there. Yeah. And actually, there's probably another small thread, too, which is uh, the human rights activist Marla Ruzica was in the Enron film. And also, huh. I remember was staying at this guest house in Afghanistan, seeing a, a plaque dedicated to her memory. Hmm. And what was the first step? Uh, after you agreed to take on this film, did you try to put it a storyboard together, or did you go out and just well, start I mean, researching? Well, I mean, the first thing I did was a lot of reading and a lot yeah. of talking to people. I mean, I was trying to get my head around this subject, and I realized that it was every bit as complicated and, and, uh, and torturous as, as Enron was in terms of trying to understand the contours of the story. But this one led to some much darker places. And yet at the same time, I wasn't making a position paper or writing a magazine article or a book. This, this was a movie which had to exist in visual terms. I was trying to find a story that would carry the weight of this subject. And it seemed to me, when I read Tim Golden's piece in the New York Times about Dilawar and how he was murdered in detention in, in Bagram in Afghanistan, that seemed to me to provide the impetus for doing the film in a kind of narrative way in. Looking at this uh-huh. one murder and, and by fanning out from that as a way of looking at the larger subject. 
because you can get lost trying to do big topics. It's very important, I think, when you're making a movie to do a story. And the Dilawar story was key in terms of mm-hmm. finding a pathway through. There was one other thing about Tim's piece that was also very helpful to me in a kind of a metaphorical way. I think the last paragraph of the piece, he notes that there was a five-day interrogation of Dilawar, this taxicab driver. On the third day, his interrogators concluded that he was innocent. And yet his keepers tortured him for another two days, both in interrogation and out of it, until he died. To me, that was the most haunting part of Tim's piece, and it made me curious about this kind of momentum of torture, that once you start, you can't stop. And I I later learned through Alberto Moore and others about this concept of forced drift, Mm. and also how, you know, like a virus, it spreads to other parts of the body politic, in particular, the rule of law. In a way, the film ends up not being just about torture, but about how the rule of law is corrupted when people begin to start inventing mechanisms for making torture a legal possibility. Right. Well, it does echo the uh, the findings from, I want to say it was in the 60s, that Stanford student experiment. The Stanford prison experiment. Yeah, and you can see elements of the behavior from then to, to this situation. Well, it's interesting. I had a kind of you know, preview of this film or a way of kind of gearing up to it. I, I did a, uh, a television show for the Sundance Channel called The Human Behavior Experiments mm-hmm. that looked at the Milgram Experiment, the Stanford Prison Experiment, mm-hmm. and the Columbia Experiment. All you know, looks at the darker side of psychological experiments that look at the darker side of human behavior. And Milgram, of course, was also in the Enron film. So... There was that aspect of human behavior that was very haunting to me. But more and more I understood about how that works. You know, after all, torture is, is not... This is something that Western civilization has tried to reckon with, going back to the Magna Carta. It also has to do with guilt and innocence and how people at the top of the chain of command can abuse their power, most notably in, in deep history, the king. So you begin to understand the political ramifications of torture in a way that, that ultimately was, for me, far more disturbing than even the physical manifestations mm-hmm. of it. Now, some of the most fascinating parts of your film were your interviews with the interrogators themselves. I, I, I don't think I've ever quite felt that intimate with somebody who was in that position of interroga- yeah, yeah. interrogation. And one of the more striking lines that was said, by, it was uh, Sergeant Thomas Curtis who said at one point uh, about, you know, in the torture and the interrogation and how, uh, you know, vile it might have been. He said, you could say that I was dead wrong, but go over there and say that. You know, go That's over right. there among the soldiers. Yeah. Did you? Were there any uncomfortable moments when you were with the interrogators? Did, did they well, realize? that was one. I mean, yeah. you know, Thomas Curtis looked long and hard at me, as yeah. if to say, and, and we held in the film, we hold his gaze for quite a long yeah. time. Yeah. I like to sit quite close to the camera when I do an interview, and so Thomas is looking at all of us uh, and basically saying, yeah, you can judge me over here. You know, go over there and judge me. And while I don't think that's entirely apt, nevertheless, there's a great deal of truth to it. You know, the, we, uh, we have to remember the kind of danger that these guys are put in, and also the kind of jeopardy that they were put in by this, you know, rather reckless administration. Yeah. So it, it's just one of those things you have to keep in mind as you begin to understand this, because, you know, when I initially approach these interrogators and guards, some of them are interrogators, some of them are military police or guards, mm. you know, I thought, well... I'm not prepared to like these guys very much. These guys were responsible for killing a man mm-hmm. um, brutally. Mm-hmm. 
but I found myself having a great deal of sympathy for these guys and a great deal of human connection. It's, it's one thing that we don't think about much, but these guys were deeply scarred by what they were ordered to do. Well, and in this film, Taxi to the Dark Side, by the way, we're speaking with Alex Gibney, you give the context, this nod and a wink approach that the at the highest levels of the Bush administration that uh, these people were not told explicitly, but certainly were told in very convincing ways that this is what they needed to do, what needed to be done, and this is what the consequences of those act- of those policies are. That's right. It's a, it's a very peculiar kind of uh, chain of command in this instance, because with some exceptions, there, I mean, there are some instances where Donald Rumsfeld, and, and we know the chain and, and we follow it in, in the film to some extent, gives explicit orders right. that permit I would argue, torture. But there are other instances when it's far vaguer than that. It's removing the rules, removing the regulations, and at the same time administering a tremendous amount of pressure to get intelligence on kids who have zero training. And that resulted in many of the abuses that we've seen, including Abu Ghraib. It's very sinister because in addition to what you've just described, they rewarded people who did these things. So the signals were very clear and very obvious. Uh, as to what was what was taking place here, I'm going to run a, an idea by you that that I just recently heard uh, from a very distinguished professor of American uh, foreign policy, historically speaking, and and he said that you have to look at American foreign policy almost exclusively through the lens of domestic policy. That what we do abroad is really more than anything else a reflection of our domestic politics. Mm-hmm. And thinking of that idea and watching this film is very chilling. Is I there... agree. And that, to me, was the biggest and most chilling discovery I made in the course of making the film, that torture is a tool of domestic politics yeah. in the most terrifying way. I mean, this goes back to Orwell and the Ministry of Love, which, of course, was a euphemism for the Ministry of Torture. But basically, Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld could look to their core constituency, their base, as getting tough on terror, uh, because they were willing to do whatever was necessary to protect us. So it had a, a very positive political impact for them, even as they were getting information through torture. And, and torture almost always gets not reliable information, but it gets the information that the interrogator wants to hear. So they're getting information that always supports their political position. That's a very important distinction, and I, I, I want to repeat it. I really do, because I think it's something that people don't really understand about this. Is When you torture somebody, you get what you want to hear from them, not necessarily what it is. You don't get the truth. You get what you want. Sometimes you may get the truth, yeah. but it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's often by accident, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. because the person who's being tortured will tell the interrogator whatever he or she wants to hear, right. just to make the pain stop. Mm-hmm. And we have instances, and one is noted in the film, in which waterboarding led to false information, which was used by Colin Powell at the U.N., though he didn't know it was false at the time, to essentially undergird our, you know, our mission in Iraq, making connect- false connections between al-Qaeda and Iraq. Mm-hmm. And that information, which was obtained through waterboarding, uh, was later repudiated by the CIA, who had helped to administer that enhanced interrogation technique, which is how the administration likes to describe torture. We're speaking with Alex Gibney. The film is Taxi to the Dark Side. Was it Mike McConnell who said that waterboarding is torture for him? 
Yeah, I yeah. mean, everybody's saying it's torture for him, but they're unwilling yeah. to say that it's illegal. I just yeah. find this jaw-dropping, yeah. you know, because in part because they know that the administration is way out on a limb. I mean, John Yu, who's in the film, now California-based law professor, who was in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice, wrote the now infamous torture memo, in which he essentially redefined torture to exclude almost everything right. except the intentional infliction of organ failure or death. Right. And that's the intentional infliction. If you happen, you know, to cause organ failure or death unintentionally, well, so be it. It's not torture. Also the author of, to a great extent, of the Patriot Act. John Yoo. John John Yoo. Yoo. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this guy... Well, John Yoo was a can-do guy in the Office of Legal Counsel. Right. Now, he told me, and he will tell others, that he was simply an attorney giving advice to his clients. Right. But I've heard from other legal scholars that what he did in trying to legitimize torture and, by the way, uh, trying to immunize Bush administration officials for being prosecuted for war crimes, what he did is tantamount to uh, a criminal offense because he knew that his clients wanted to break the law. He helped them break the law with the knowledge that his advice would lead to them breaking the law. That's a crime. Yeah. In the film, you describe this as kind of slinking around in the in the legal shadows. I call it kind of a parlor game, although it's a deadly parlor game here, of really trying to manipulate language to make it sound like something it isn't. That's right. I mean, John, you found in some obscure yeah. medical statute yeah. a definition of extreme pain or severe pain, which is part of you know the, the statute prohibiting torture, that would allow him to essentially define torture out of existence. Also, John, you believed, as do many of the people uh, around him, people like David Addington, who's the council vice president, and others, they have this theory about the power of the executive during wartime that, in their view, gives virtually unlimited powers to the executive. And Alberto Mora, a rather courageous Republican appointee who questioned some of these policies, told me, he said he asked John, you directly, he said, can the president order torture? And John, you said yes. Well, torture domestically, torture, where, where, does it, where is this line? It's important if our listeners are interested in kind of understanding this administration and what is going on, to watch back-to-back, if you will, what happened, uh, No End in Sight, which you were the executive producer on, right. and this film, and, and we just interviewed Craig Unger last week on the fall of, of the House of Bush. That is a very complete picture of what is going on, what has happened, and really the direction uh, that this country is heading. Well, I hope this country isn't heading in that direction. I mean, well, this administration, allowed to, yeah. who we've allowed to manipulate our fears, yeah. and they've done it very cleverly, sometimes to their political advantage. But you know, it's up to us to say enough, no more. Yeah. But. Every time I hope that the Congress will assert its power, I'm always disappointed. I was deeply disappointed in Charles Schumer and Dianne Feinstein yes, when they mm-hmm. did not stand up to, to oppose the, um, the Attorney General nomination of Mukasey. Yeah. Because here's a guy who allegedly is a believer in the rule of law who's unwilling to say that waterboarding is illegal. Yeah. simply because his masters have practiced the... Well, wouldn't he, in, in, in essence, be saying that if he did say that, he'd have to prosecute them? Yes. Once he became an attorney general. But so. that's like going back to the Clinton administration when the Clinton administration refused to categorize as what was going on in, in Rwanda as genocide. The excuse used then was we can't say it's genocide because then we'd have to do something. We have, we've talked about sort of the, the macro picture here. The, this film follows the death of Dilawar, who was a taxi driver right. in Afghanistan 
through Bagram, and we and eventually we end up in Abu Ghraib. But you were we were one of the first, if not the first, to get actual video of the inside of Bagram, and it's it doesn't take much more than a few visuals here to understand what was going on there. That's right. Well, we have some very disturbing images of of the autopsy of of, of Dilawar, and yes. you can see how. You know, he was he was killed in effect because he was need in the he, he was being hung from the ceiling, chained to the ceiling, in order to keep him awake because it was part of the it's part of the sleep deprivation program they had to enhance his interrogation. So all this blood was running to his legs, and then his guards were kneeing him in the thigh over and over and over again until the um, one of the army coroners who who declared that his death was a homicide said his, his legs were pulpified in their and also the this extra uh, grisly detail which is had he survived they would have had to have amputated his legs right but yeah. then we flash forward and understand i mean this was a an, uh, this was a kid 23 years old who had never spent a night away from home in his life. He was driving home in his taxi with three passengers to his uh, wife and young child, a beautiful young girl whose picture we show in the film. He, snapped, he snatched up by Afghan militia and turned over to the Americans um, as the guilty party in, in, in launching a rocket attack against an American base. For a price. He's being, they're being paid to do this. In this particular instance, they may or may not have been okay. paid. But in, okay. in any case, what we learn is they turned him over for this, and and of course the Americans who, uh, who who take him to Bagram, you know that's the rap he comes into Bagram with. He launched an attack against our our soldiers. It turns out that the very people who captured Dilawar were in fact the people who launched the rocket attack, and they were doing this often. They would launch an attack against an American base, find innocent people to blame for it, so they could curry favor with the Americans. It's the most heinous kind of irony and it but it also tells you a lot uh as as we follow this mystery from place to place to place it tells you a lot about the corrupting power of torture because it leads to lies that 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 are then paraded as truth and to those in power those lies then have the force of power um in a way that's uh, that's, that's very disturbing the line that you draw from uh, Dilawar's death all the way up to the highest levels of the, of the American government, including President Bush, Vice President Cheney, and Secretary of Defense uh, Donald Rumsfeld. Is there a case to be made before a world court that these people were in fact, author- they, they did in fact authorize torture and the deaths of, the, of these people? Can, yeah, I, can I, we, I think can there we? is. I mean, I, it's not my job as a filmmaker right. to bring that case, right. uh, but I think there's a domestic case to be made if anybody had the the the, the courage to pursue it. I think it's um, it's clear that this is a policy. We're supposed to be a nation that's campaigning to eliminate stuff like this, right. but many of the practices that we've employed in the war on terror are practices that were routinely used by people like the Khmer Rouge or uh, the KGB and the Soviet Union to obtain false confessions. That was their purpose, not to get good intelligence, but to obtain false confessions. Now, we're employing these as a matter of policy, and I think it's fairly clear if you watch the film. You'll understand that this is policy. It's not an aberration. It's not a few bad apples. Right. It was the barrel that was rotten. By the yeah. yes, it was. And by the way, Absolutely. my understanding is that President Bush just signed. Uh, I think it was a defense authorization bill just this last week 
that essentially immunizes the entire administration from any, any prosecution. Well, they're continuing to do that. I mean, that's what also what the Military Commissions Act uh, intends to do. It's hard to know whether it's immunization or whether or not these are just ongoing attempts to protect themselves in light of what may happen in the future. From the very beginning in, in the Office of Legal Counsel and in the uh, Vice President's Office, there was a lot of talk about the fact that these things were war crimes and how could they uh, rewrite the laws to be sure that they wouldn't be prosecuted for war crimes? Right. Or well, how could they interpret the laws to be sure that they wouldn't be prosecuted for war crimes? One of the, I know we've got to wrap this up soon, but one of the troubling precedents from, uh, from the Nuremberg trials was that if the Germans could prove that, the al- that, that were on trial in Nuremberg, they could prove that, they had, that the Americans or the Allies had done the same thing during World War II, they were able to escape prosecution. Mm. And I think we're seeing some of that today. I think we're also seeing uh, a world in which we're all becoming less safe. Yeah. I mean, the goal of every terrorist, certainly the stated goal of Osama bin Laden, and the goal of every terrorist is to provoke liberal democratic societies to abandon their principles, to abandon the civil liberties that we hold so dearly. Once we do that, it becomes a kind of recruiting poster for right. terrorists around the world because we're no longer the good guys. We're the bad guys. Well, for anyone who cares about the rule of law in this country, go see Taxi to the Dark Side. Alex Gibney, thank you so much for joining us here on Film School today. Appreciate Great it. Great to talk to you. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.